0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Institute for Government event, which we're holding in partnership with the Wellcome Trust. And as I think you all know, our topic today is global Britain and international research. What is the UK's science and health research role after Brexit? My name is Hannah White, and I'm deputy director of the Institute. As you all know, Today we're going to be talking about what more the UK could do to promote global research around the world and including how it can work with other countries and how it can foster new and ambitious networks and and equitable research partnerships. This is the latest event in a collaboration that we at the Institute have been uh, running with the Wellcome Trust and that began in the summer of 2020. We've been holding virtual roundtables in this new world we find ourselves in. um, We held five over the course of the summer. And the aim of those was very similar to the the aim of our discussion today to really explore how the UK can play a role as we move forward after Brexit um, and how it can work with other countries and institutions around the world in terms of, of promoting global research. And we were delighted to be joined in those discussions by a range of senior leaders from across the world. Uh, from the UK, but also from Europe, Israel, Australia, the US, Canada, Pakistan, South Africa and Rwanda. So it's a really global discussion and uh, really fascinating. And I'm delighted that today we have a panel to to definitely rival those ones we we ran over the summer um, and a very eminent panel of guests. So our panel today, we have Lord Johnson of Marlebone, former Minister of State for Universities, Science, Research and Innovation. We have Mr. Pascal Lamy for former director general of the World Trade Organization, Dr Richard Torbert, chief executive of the Association of, of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, and Dr Beth Thompson, who's head of policy and advocacy, UK and the EU at Wellcome Trust. So before we kick off today, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, to note that this event is on the record, we will make a, a video and, and an audio podcast of the event available on our website as soon as possible after we finish today. IFG staff will be live tweeting the event uh, from our uh, our address at IFG events and the hashtag if you would like to tweet and we welcome you to do so um, is hashtag IFG research. In terms of the format of today's event, we're going to begin with short opening remarks from each of our panellists. Uh, before I pose some questions to them, then it'll be your turn. So please do start thinking about the questions that you would like to ask the panel. And please do start adding them to the chat as soon as you like. Um, You don't have to wait till we've uh, heard all the opening remarks and I've got start finished asking questions before you put your um, questions there. We'd like to see what questions you have. um, And please, if you'd like to do so, let us know your name and where you're viewing from. So with no more uh, uh, pausing, let's carry on. And uh, I'd like to invite um, Joe Johnson uh, to kick us off um, and, and tell us uh, what you think um, about about this sort of key question that we've posed ourselves today. What's the UK's current role in global research and what more should the UK government be doing to, to meet its global research ambitions?
2: Great. Well, thanks, Hannah. Great to be here. Um, look, I think this is a great time for Global science is a great time for British science, and we've seen during the COVID-19 crisis the the vital importance of science and internationally collaborative research. British scientists have been plugged into what is clearly a very global effort to understand the disease, and they've been at the heart of the government's attempts to grapple with this incredibly complicated public health challenge, providing advice through a variety of structures including obviously uh, SAGE. The the pandemic has also been a, a very forceful and painful reminder of the world's vulnerability to systemic risks. And it's very clear that UK science, our, our great researchers, are gonna be at the heart of all of our efforts to try and increase our resilience to these risks, the, the most obvious of which is, is clearly climate change. And the UK science push To develop the potential of technologies such as hydrogen, carbon capture and and storage, uh, zero emission vehicles and zero emission industrial processes um, is clearly going to be very very important. A lot of governments have been very strong on rhetoric but weaker on resources for R&D and that's been a, a weakness of our system for you know a couple of decades now. I think this government is showing signs of being significantly different in this respect. Um, It is genuinely matching the rhetoric with resources, and we're we're in the process of seeing UK public expenditure on R&D enjoying its its biggest uplift in real terms in a very, very long time, with the the Chancellor this spring uh, setting out an ambition to uh, get us towards 3% of GDP on R&D, with the public contributing £22 billion per year by 2024-2025. That's big bucks um, in the scheme of things relative to where we are today. And it's obviously very important that the government is held to that commitment and that there are detailed milestones put in place to secure uh, that position in 2024-2025. Clearly, there is a temptation for a government facing the fiscal challenges that it does, to put in place something of a hockey stick curve um, that backends a lot of those payments towards the end of the parliament. And I'm sure people in the science community will be vigilant um, on the sort of the shape of that line uh, towards 2024, 2025. But what I would say is that I remember when I was in the department, we were contemplating increases in the science budget of this sort of magnitude. And the push from the centre was very much, can we do more? Can we spend more? And there was actually pushback from the community and from the department, as to the absorption capacity of our system, and that's a nice problem to have in some ways. Clearly, we want to have a science system that's able to absorb significantly enhanced amounts of public funding. But as a problem to have, I can think of I can think of worse ones. In terms of you know the immediate priorities, obviously we've got to deal with the pandemic and 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 ensure we've got a a proper roadmap towards increasing our R&D budget. But we've also got to appreciate that there are preconditions for the successful utilisation of this budget. And that means engaging other aspects of government policy, making sure we've got a strong immigration policy that has uh, Britain clearly situating itself as a country that's open to talent and actively seeking to work with the best minds around the world. And it's also got to have a clear mindset about openness and openness to collaboration, in particular. Uh, as we're in the process uh, this week of uh, finalising the terms of our departure and our new relationship with the EU, this is a, this is a topical subject, uh, collaboration. I think the government has been clear that whatever the modalities of our eventual new relationship with the EU, we will want to continue to collaborate uh, with all our European partners, and I remember back in 2017 reading Pascal Lamy's excellent um, high-level group report, um, looking at an interim evaluation of Horizon, which made it very clear, if I remember, how mutually beneficial uh, these, this collaboration between the UK and EU is and would con- and will can hopefully continue to be. That's got to make sense, even in the event that we don't strike a deal. And I obviously very much hope that we do. But in the event that we don't strike a deal, the government has made it clear that the UK would continue to want to participate in elements of the Horizon Europe programme that were open to third countries at the very least. Obviously, small consolation compared to the deep and rich collaborations that are on offer to British scientists today. But it shouldn't be seen in the event of a no deal that we're rupturing all our ties with Horizon Europe. Clearly, that would not uh, hopefully be the case at all. And it's obviously worth stating that Horizon Europe is just one of the many different platforms that the UK has to foster international collaborations. Through our uh, DFID funded programmes, the Global Challenges Research Fund, through the Newton programme and through internationally collaborative projects funded through the Department of Health. Um, the NIHR Global Health Research Programmes, we do collaborate internationally through other funding mechanisms, but they are relatively small scale uh, compared to Horizon Europe. And If we're absent from that, the pressure on us to put in place alternative programmes will be great, and the government will have to act very rapidly to put some meat on the bones there. I think that's enough for me by way of intro. Thanks, Anna.
1: Thanks very much, Joe. Um, well, Mr Lavi, you've uh... Had an introduction there already from uh, Joe Johnson. Um, What's your view of of where the UK finds itself now and how best can it combine the scientific knowledge it has with its diplomatic position now and and maximise its impact internationally?
0: Uh,
3: Thank you very much, Uh, I'm glad to see you back at least, uh, Joe and Richard, with whom I've been interacting on this topic for some time. Probably not as much in my capacity as a former DG of WTO, but as Joe just said, as being quite heavily involved in uh, framing uh, the next uh, European uh, research and development program, uh, which is called uh, uh, Horizon Europe. Uh, to answer your question uh, as precisely and uh, as shortly as possible, uh, we, know where, we know where we start from. We start from a situation where uh, UK as a member of the European Union until uh, next uh, uh, week or so uh, is uh, the number one player in Europe uh, research and development. That's the measure we have which is in this EU research area who has the largest activity, who benefits from the largest funding from the EU budget is the UK. So that shows that uh, UK is a big player within the European uh, space. And the question is whether or not this uh, European space, this European research area, within which UK is the biggest player, will all know, survive Brexit. That's, I think, the real issue we have to focus on. Uh, my own take for what it's worth is that uh, it should be the case, i.e. Uh, Brexit should not mean research and development exit, the UK should definitely, in my view, but I recognise on a bloody continental, UK, in my view, should remain within the European research area. This is for sure what I see as the EU interest. Whether it is the UK interest or not, by definition, not for me to say. But I have a view that it should also be the case for for the UK. So I see it as a win-win, as it has been the case uh, for the uh, three or four recent decades. So Plan A, according to me, is obviously that UK remains in the open research area. There are ample possibilities to do that. Switzerland is there, uh, Norway is there, Israel is there, uh, Turkey is there. If these countries are there, the UK not being there, let's be frank, would look very strange. But this, of course, implies that once, if and when uh, a Brexit uh, uh, deal is done, which I believe it will be done, although I'm not sure, but if I had to bet my shirt, uh, I think it will it will unfold. Then the first thing to do is to negotiate this association agreement with the European Union. I've been saying, like Joe, like Richard, and like a few others for two or three years, that this is a no-brainer, that whatever are the modalities of Brexit, this should be a given. Unfortunately, uh, this view did not prevail, and the reality is that there has already been quite a lot of damage done to the sort of knitted tissue which was built within the open research area between uh, UK and the continent. And the paradox is that the absence of such a clear perspective has led to a knitting of part of the contracts, collaborations, corporations, which we know in science are absolutely essential. And in a way, Switzerland, Norway, Israel and Turkey are better off. The the, the tissue was not as damaged with them, because they know where they are, than it was with UK. Uh, So I, I regret it. I mean, that's the past and so be it. But on both sides, they thought that it would be politically unwise to say Well, whatever happens on carrots or lorries, on fish or whatever research is a one that will not change, so be it. So I think that's, it remains plan A, there probably has to be a plan B. Uh, uh, This is the experience uh, we Europeans have uh, uh, dealing with the United Kingdom uh, for uh, uh, half a century and and notably the four or five uh, last years. There has to be a plan B, uh, but to be to be very frank, my friend, this plan B is yours. I'm, I'm not sure I can help very much devising a plan B uh, where uh, the United Kingdom, research and development wise, would float somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, looking at a very complex navigation and spending a lot of time to see uh, how near it is to the European coast and how near it is to the American coast, because this is where the research space is. And at the end of the day, if we have to move to Plan B, and that's my final word, your big question will be, how much with Europe? How much with the US? I mean, as major research partners, of course, there is cooperation with China, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Brazil and the rest, but that's the two big things. And the Plan B for you will be, how much for one and for the other. It being understood that compatibility may be uh, doubtful as we move more and more economies and societies to intangibles, which have a lot more of research, innovation and brain juice component. Can the UK brain juice be both European and American? Is an open question. That's for you to decide. Thanks for your attention.
1: Thanks, Mr. Lamy. And uh, so, uh, Ms, uh, Dr. Torbert, how ought the uh, how ought the UK to make best use of our brain juice?
4: Well, th- thank you very much, Hannah. And um, yes, quite two two very tough acts to follow, particularly the comments on brain juice and the uh, the, the straight messages there from from Pascal. Um, I uh, I represent the research-based pharmaceutical industry here in the UK. Um, I have to say, I started my career working for DG Research in Brussels, thinking about research policy. So um, to put my cards on the table as a former European science policy specialist and now working for the industry, I look at this really from a perspective of trying to uh, encourage the sort of open, collaborative behaviour that that both Joe and Pascal have have spoken about. I I wanted to start by by giving a a few numbers for a bit of context for the the, uh, life sciences industry here in the UK. Consistently, over many years, um, this has been the largest R&D investor. We invest £4.5 billion uh, in the UK economy, Um, set in a global context. We spend around $200 billion globally on on R&D, and the UK footprint comes from a combination of large domestic companies, but also a thriving smaller biopharmaceutical industry plus increasingly inward investors both from the US and from the EU and increasingly outside of both of those two uh, countries as well. So we have about uh, 60,000 jobs, uh, 24,000 scientists in the private sector in this country. uh, And from a trade perspective, that leads to around 30 billion uh, euros of of exports. Um, so, So we're a strong industry in this country and the relationship with the UK science base in the first instance is really critical for us and I can't help giving a few numbers on the UK science base if I may as well. So we're less than 1% of the world population here, but we account for around 4% of global researchers, 10% of citations globally and of the world's most highly cited scientific papers, we account for more than 15% of those. So it's incredibly good, strong base to start from, but I couldn't agree more with the comments that we've just heard that that is it has to be seen in a global context and our ability to work very effectively within the European research area and uh, across the Atlantic and with fast growing parts of the world like China is critically important for the future. In short, anything that gets in the way of scientists collaborating with whomever they need to collaborate with and wherever they need that collaboration to take place is a bad thing. We need policy to facilitate the movement of people. We need funding opportunities to allow, uh, to allow collaborative work, both internationally and between public and private sectors, to work very well. Although I think the points made earlier on around absorptive capacity are really interesting. And um, I did want to mention trade, and obviously particularly with Pascal's presence here, I think is a very, very important uh, kind of aspect of this debate, because I think trade is a critical enabler for all of this. From a business point of view, it's very important not to see R&D in isolation with everything else that we do. Increasingly, the activities of R&D are highly interconnected with the rest of our value chain, which includes manufacturing, it includes product development, which in in the case of the pharmaceutical industry means clinical research and the work that we do in hospitals and healthcare settings to develop treatments. Um, So, really, you know, broadly, open rules-based trade is incredibly important for. For business and science-based business and science um, of course we need to get rid of protectionism which is always a, a worry but i think you know effective trade policy can be a critical enabler of international cooperation on science particularly around the development of joint funding programs and i also want to highlight the importance of strengthening and harmonizing standards Whether that's around uh, regulation, whether it's around intellectual property rights, whether it's around uh, reward for innovation at the end of our value chain, without which, of course, we can't invest in the first place. And so against that backdrop, I I think, you know, I think a couple of observations I would make. There are some worrying signals right right now. Um, Economies around the world are struggling both with an economic crisis and with a pandemic at the same time. I think that's very worrying on the economic side of things that will lead to a tendency to want to cut back and constrain budgets. Uh, it's critically important not to confuse the economics of uh, public finance with that of households. And I think fundamentally pro-growth policies that see science as the engine of innovative uh, economies is really a cr- critical to remind ourselves of. Um, I was going to avoid the B word in this conversation, particularly this week. Uh, but I think I'll, I'll suffice it to say there is significant uncertainty remaining about the international funding opportunities and movement of people uh, that, that we've heard of, and that really needs to be uh, to be addressed. Um, COVID, uh, as has been mentioned, you know, as I think, really a, a massive success story so far for the power of international collaboration and the power of collaboration across public and private sectors. It's been a genuine global effort and we have to learn the lessons for that, not least to prepare ourselves for future pandemics, future challenges, uh, of which in the healthcare space there are significant ones. COVID needs to be a wake up call for us on subjects like antimicrobial resistance uh, uh, and on the, on some of the other pandemics that really could. Uh, could be very problematic in future. I think the UK can play a very positive role. We need to get a comprehensive deal with the European Union. That's really important to say. Um, But I think it can also take a leadership role uh, more generally, particularly with the chairmanship of the G7 next year. We have an opportunity there to, uh, to both redefine the UK post Brexit and also put a marker down that health and science can be the foundation of a productive, healthy economy. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Richard. Um, Dr. Thompson, um, I know that uh, the Institute and Wellcome Trust have been have been thinking about these these questions a lot, and I have already heard a lot from our from our other panelists that I know that you will agree with. But uh, what are your main thoughts as, as we sit in this rather uncertain moment, um, uh, waiting to find out what the negotiators uh, uh, will or will not deliver?
0: Thanks, Anna, and. Um- We've really enjoyed our collaboration with with IFG on this and we've pulled together some of our thinking based on those roundtables that Hannah mentioned into a report on the UK's role in in global research. And I'll I'll talk through some of the things that we've put in there, but um, do go and look at that further if you're interested in in more. I think because of this time we're in, there is really a unique opportunity for the UK to set out its vision and its store for international Cooperation in research and working out how it's going to approach that and some of the difficult questions and, and choices that we will have to make as the UK. Picking up on some of the points so far about international collaboration, I think it's worth pausing for a minute to say this is so different to trade. It is, as Richard says, absolutely related because um, r and sit on a spectrum with, with, other, with companies' wider business, but it's not like trade in the sense that we can simply measure imports and exports and look at balance of trade, because um, Pascal touched on this, it's not a zero sum game when we collaborate on research between two countries. So both sides benefit in that international collaboration through the exchange of skills and ideas, um, and and together we get more of the sum of those parts. So while we know that competition can help raise our game, and I think that's something we've really seen um, through the European research area, that coming together has enabled those countries, uh, individuals within those countries to compete against each other and a bit like playing in the Champions League, really keep upping um, the individual teams upping their games. This isn't really at all about competition between countries. So because of this win-win nature, there is a a huge amount of potential to to club together and solve those big challenges that, that some of the other panelists have mentioned. But that doesn't mean that we could or should take every single opportunity to collaborate. Um, and I think in some ways that seems like a controversial thing for me to say. Um, but it takes me back to Joe's point that we have a huge amount of research investment promised in the system, and that is a brilliant thing. but we need to use those resources intentionally and and carefully to be as effective as we can. We still can't do every can't take every single opportunity that we want to. We also have a government that wants the UK to be a science superpower. And that is much more than about being domestically strong in research. And Richard set out some of those stats brilliantly well already. It is not about how we compete and compare with other countries in some kind of league table. It's really about how we use that strength on the world stage and, and how we turn that into uh, into true leadership through things like the G7 Um, and uh, the COP and COP next year. How do we take that as one of the tools in the UK's diplomatic toolbox to make the world a better place? But I think to do both of those things, to use our domestic resources carefully and, and intentionally, and to really play this leadership role, we need a sense of a strategy and a vision of where we're going to really shape the difficult choices that have to be made. Um, I think that will help us spot the opportunities, spot the gaps, but also shape our domestic policies on things like immigration, which others have touched on. I will only mention Brexit briefly now. Um, I'm sure we can come back to it. But um, from our perspective at Welcome, absolutely, the collaboration with the EU has to be at the heart of that strategy. And that's because the EU is, is so scientifically strong. It's our biggest partner when you look at the 27 together. That multilateral scheme, as I've said, dries up the quality of science. And I think we also have important shared values and an approach to doing science in terms of things like openness that make the EU a great partner for us. So it's it's not driven uh, by a, an ideological approach that we need to collaborate together. There are really good scientific reasons to keep the EU as a strong partner. But of course, the vision and its implementation must be about much more than the EU. So we do need to look at immigration We need to look at trade deals and where research fits within those and as Richard said how that flows through into R&D intensive companies and their work and really how we put that leadership into action. Thank
1: you very much Beth. Well some fascinating um, uh, opening remarks there from our panel and uh, quite a lot of commonality I think. Um, Can I just come back to to you Jo and ask in the sort of uh, as we leave the European Union whether you feel that there are particular networks or groups of other countries where you think the UK should be really looking to partner in terms of uh, research internationally. Are there, are there um, places you would really like to see um, a focus from from the government right now? Uh,
2: well, I think, I think when I said earlier that we need to put meats on the bone of uh, an alternative strategy you know, in the event that we're no longer members of the European research area and, and don't Uh, have a full association relationship to Horizon Europe. I think part of the explanation for that has been that the community has found it such a sort of a shocking prospect that it hasn't really engaged uh, perhaps as meaningfully as it perhaps ought to have done in trying to develop this plan B for the UK and in elements of it are, are starting to come into place with um, the the new the government's um, I think put together a, sort of a two hundred million pound pot of money uh, to facilitate uh, collaborative funding arrangements with with other countries around the world. But in the scheme of things, that in the scheme of things that's relatively undercooked. Um, I would say uh, relative to where it ought to be, given that you know on January the first, twenty twenty one, we could be um, you know out of out of the uh, European research area and and kind of on our own. Uh, in in that respect, so I think the sort of the the community's apprehensions about even exploring contingency plans, um, because it's so wedded to the existing model, for understandable reasons, um, hasn't hasn't helped us develop these alternatives. But in terms of you know where the exciting opportunities are, you know we can see the the, the rapid changes that we've that we've witnessed over the last decade in terms of who the UK is collaborating with globally. China has gone from being a country that no G7 uh, country partnered with 15 years ago to any significant degree to being basically, after the US, the number one partner of choice. Um, it is now the I, uh, Hannah. I think you said. I think you said the EU was our number one partner. I, I'm not so sure. I think the I think the US is our number one partner. And um, by terms of uh, in terms of collaborations, and I think China is now our number two partner. Um, so I'm, I, anyway, we, the facts can establish themselves, but I think it's China is is rapidly zooming up um, the hierarchy of our collaboration partners. And given the massive inputs into the Chinese system and the opportunities for collaboration with China, um, you know, I, I think that is a very clear and obvious partner for the UK. Clearly, there are. Uh, important safeguards that need to be put in place, and um, that the uk Universities UK has has recently published, uh, to ensure that secu- the security dimension is fully taken care of. And there are also always going to be issues around uh, research integrity and uh, academic freedoms in in researching with China. But we shouldn't blind ourselves to the bigger picture, which is that this China is going to be the superpower of global R and D. Uh, in the coming in the coming decades and a lot of our collaborative science if we're serious about you know being being part of the solution to our global challenges is going to have to involve us being at the very least aware of what china chinese science is doing and if we're not collaborating with with chinese science uh, we're not going to be aware and we're not going to be participants in that progress
1: Dr. Thomson, I saw you nodding vigorously at the start there uh, uh, when when Joe was ask, answering that question, and 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 I think you were you were agreeing that the, the research community in the UK has to sort of make a
0: mental shift now. Is that right? Absolutely. I think it has. It's taken the community some time to come to come to terms with if if they already have the change that we're going through, and I think it's so important that the community gets behind thinking about. Real solutions, so alternatives to Horizon, but also in this new world that we're in, what do our relationships look like? How do we collaborate? And I think we have to do that regardless of the outcome of Brexit. Um, but I think we have a lot of um, a lot of work to do to catch up in terms of understanding how research can be integrated well into trade deals. What opportunities might we look for? So I think it's a, it's a place for us to do some some catch up quickly. Ms Lamy. Joe raised the, the, the um,
1: importance of China um, in, in the coming uh, years and, and decades. How would you say um, that the role of, of the, the EU is seeing the role of China and the, whether they're really a kind of uh, a competitor or an ally in terms of, uh, of research?
3: Yeah, I'll of course answer this question. Uh, let me, as far as I'm concerned, take stock of one bit of the discussion which is that it has already helped me realising that there is no plan B. Now, whether this is good news or not, I leave that to you, but that's what you've been saying. And it, it says quite a lot, although, although most of you have also said there should be one <laughs> for obvious reasons. Now, turning to your question, uh, you know, I hear uh, these uh, very nice words about collaboration and leadership. Fine with that. Uh, but if you collaborate with China, uh, the question of who has the leadership, I think is quite easy to answer. The Chinese, and I know them, and I work with them, and I have worked with them, and I'll keep working with them, are people who uh, their mindset, their culture has a lot to do with force, weight, clout. And if you want to collaborate on something with China, you'd better watch that you can hold reasonably firm the terms of some sort of arrangement that benefits both. So, the EU, of course, and I totally agree with Joe uh, on this, will up its collaborative uh, relationship on science and development with uh, with China. Of course, we will do that, but we will do this arm's select. I mean, the, the the definition of China by the EU in geopolitical and geoeconomic terms, is well known now. It's a competitor, a partner, and a rival. And how much of the three, how much of these three ingredients do you put in the research soup will depend. Last point I would like to make, uh, listening to uh, to this discussion and trying to uh, enrich it, that of course. We are in our research bubble, we are talking about research. What really matters for people is not research, it's innovation. Not all innovation comes from research, and we know disruptive innovation comes from research, but innovation is much more connected to markets than research. And there is a relationship between research and innovation, and the size, structure, of markets. And one of the big questions for the UK after Brexit will be whether or not it diverges from the standards, the norms, the regulations of the EU in that they structure a market and this in my view will have a bearing on your, your own roadmap. Whether there is a plan A which is European research area, but with a distinct market, or whether you have to move to plan B, where the odds will will be that the market is even more distinct, this is something which I think you need to factor in, uh, because it doesn't work the same way uh, if you really diverge from standards, And, and notably in one area which I see as growing, which is precaution. what I call precautionism as opposed to protectionism, uh, protectionism is when you protect your producers from foreign competition, precautionism is when you protect your people from risks. And this has a lot to do with regulation, with a certification, with control, with tests, and either you do it the same way and you have economies of scale or you don't do it the same way and then
4: you have a double problem on your plan B in my view. Richard, you look like you wanted to come
1: in there.
4: So, I think so many interesting things have been said there.
1: I, I just wanted to reflect
4: that I think, from a pure science and research point of view, we'd always want to say, let's not get into a debate about do we collaborate with the EU or do we collaborate with China or do we collaborate with the US. We'd always want to say, we need all of these things together from a pure science response point of view. You know, if you're a scientist, doing a literature review and you find an interesting paper, you want to spot the author and send them an email and start working with them wherever they are in the world. So it needs glo- global collaboration. I think that requires all of the funding kind of groups or the collaborative sort of regions of the world to all think more external. I would wait like one observation about the direction of Europe's Horizon programme right now, which is, you know, if the UK is not a member of the uh, European research area, we could potentially compete as a third country. And in the old collaborative programmes within Horizon, there was a 30% of the budget was available for ex-EU collaborations. Now, that, as I understand it, is due to go down to 20%. So I think, you know, in the event that the UK has to try and be a third country collaborating with the EU, it would have to do it in a smaller share of the EU budget. I just think it's a very interesting signal to send from an EU perspective about how it sees its role collaborating on a sort of global scientific um, uh, b- b- basis to reduce that number from thirty down to down to twenty. So I think I think it's and you know I think set alongside you know protectionist rhetoric that we've seen in other parts of the world, it's not necessarily helpful. I do though, as soon as you get out of the pure research area. I absolutely agree with some of the comments that Pascal has just made about um, you know, the need to be really smart and careful about markets and the rules of the game and how you and how you collaborate. And I think particularly, um, you know, we have to look very closely at global, the global trading system to ensure that the framework conditions are there for as much of a level playing field and common standards as possible. Um, You know, China, we do collaborate with China, so science-based companies here in the UK collaborate with China all the time. There are huge Chinese investors uh, buying up uh, early stage companies in this country. I think often um, at very large valuations compared to what university spin-out companies might be getting from uh, UK or European or even US financial institutions. So I think how the global market for technology is evolving uh, needs to be looked at to ensure it is fair and uh, kind of uh, level playing field as possible i suppose but i think I, I would just separate out that sort of from a pure science point of view we want global collaboration and as soon as the economics get involved we have to be very careful and work as hard as we can towards common rules
1: thanks richard i'm going to dive now into the questions and we've got lots of questions coming in so thank you very much to the audience for those um, I'm going to combine a couple of them um, for you, Joe. Um, both about the, the implications of, of a possible, um, uh, you know, the less optimistic scenario that we've all been discussing. So, less association with 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 Horizon Europe. Um, there's a question from Yana Kelly saying, um, if, if the UK doesn't have an association like a, uh, with with Horizon Europe, do you fear excellent scientists would choose another big EU country like France or Germany to do their research in? And there's another question from Robert Morland saying, if we're outside, um, we will be outside the EU single market. Do you think that major foreign companies doing research are going to look to have operations in other in the EU rather than in the UK? And, and do you fear the implications of that for UK research?
2: Look, I mean, I, I think we need to wait to see what kind of uh, arrangements are in place before we, you know, make make predictions about shifts in business R&D. Obviously that is the the biggest component of our national R&D effort, two thirds of of it coming from business. And it's the bit that's been growing most slowly um, of all the the various uh, sources of funding for our science and research efforts. So clearly that would be a concern if there were additional sort of impediments in the way of of business R&D doing what it needs to do. And it's obviously particularly important in. Providing the pathway towards more applied R and D and eventually innovations that, that that are what people really care about. Um, you know, as to you know the, the the nuts and bolts of it, the government has been has been pretty clear that it doesn't want there to be a rupture, as I said earlier, of our relations with European our European R and D partners. They're they're too important. Um, clearly, being a third country sort of participant in Horizon Europe would be. A second best outcome, third best outcome, um, for us. Um, and I very much hope that we that we don't end up in that position. As as Pascal Lamy uh, in his high level group report, and and again today has said, it's a win win uh, for us uh, as the UK and as the EU to work closely together. Um, you know, I look at uh, the twenty seven other EU countries and we, the UK, are a top five collaborative partner for each, for, for, for almost all of them. Um, and, you know, I think that the loss in sort of in, in the, the, the damage to that public good that collaboration creates would be would be pretty significant and it would be a great shame to see that happen.
1: Thanks, Joe. Um, I'm going to uh, ask a question now from Bernardo Rodriguez. Um, and I'm going to put this one to, to you, Beth. Um, He's asking about data adequacy if, if we don't get a data adequacy decision from the EU and obviously that's not a one-off thing that that, that could change again in the future regardless of, of how it starts um, how would that affect EU-UK research cooperation um, and are there other things you're concerned about which might undermine cooperation in future?
0: Thanks Hannah I'm really grateful for that question because I think this is a really under-discussed issue um, Researchers try really hard not to use personal data in their research. They anonymize it where they can. But sometimes, particularly in areas like health research, they do have to use personal data. And there, having been part of the single market and having free flow of data has really enabled those research collaborations. There's no doubt that uh, without an adequacy agreement, that is going to become much more challenging. So it's not impossible for a researcher in the EU to transfer their data to a researcher in the UK, but the burden, the regulatory burden for that will become much higher. So it's something that we're, we are worried about. It doesn't just affect research, it will affect many, many other sectors. Um, uh, personally, I think it will be such a challenge to the way we do business in its broadest sense that there has to be some kind of work around, some way to, to facilitate it and kind of oil the wheels because it will be, will be deeply, deep, deeply challenging. So I hope in the event of a lack of adequacy decision, We'll be able to find some alternatives and and if needs, be looking at a research specific carve out um is something that we would be keen to see, but it is it's could be deeply problematic. Richard, did you want to come in on that one?
4: Uh, just to echo the phrase deeply problematic.
0: <laughs>
4: I mean, it's really essential. Uh, you know we do clinical trials that are a huge component. Of that four and a half billion pounds of R and D investment in this country, that are usually not confined just to the island of Great Britain. Uh, we do these things internationally. Uh, we want to work on an efficient basis internationally. Without data advocacy, it's incredibly complicated.
1: I'm going to move on to a question from Miles Wixted, who's asking about the recent um, government decisions uh, in the UK on international development funding. Uh, deciding um, no longer to, to stick to the uh, currently legal commitment for 0.7 percent of GDP on on um, uh, DAC funding. Um, he says, um, do you think that, that that decision from the government will have negative implications for the potential to build research and innovation partnerships with emerging economies? Um, can I put that first to, to you, Joe?
2: Um, yeah, no, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, what we've clearly seen uh, in terms of the allocation of DFID funding is significant quantities of it being routed through other government departments um, in order to enable them to uh, pursue government policy uh, in the, in their own areas. And and Bayes has been one of the BAYS, the Department of Business Energy Industrial Strategy, has been one of the main beneficiaries of that policy of taking funds uh, nominally under the control of DFID and routing them through other government departments into things like Newton, the Global Challenges Research Fund um, and other other mobility schemes. And I I suspect very strongly that even if there is um, some pressure on the DFID budget, um, thanks to the decision taken a a few weeks ago, I, I strongly suspect that that shift in resources towards science using different money just to, to fund our science effort globally um will will very much continue. so i would I would expect there to be um, a strong continuity of policy in that respect.
1: Beth, do you want to come in on that? I know uh, I shared a really interesting roundtable um uh, one of the, the the ones we ran with you which looked specifically at the mutual benefits for um, emerging economies in the uk when when entering um, uh, research sort of collaborations. is this something that that you're concerned about?
0: It is and we're concerned about the move from from 0.7 to 0.5 but um, as Joe says we don't know the allocations yet and I think it's really important that the research community makes a case for how that uh, that funding is used to support these international research collaborations. We've seen things like an Ebola vaccine be developed and then deployed using um, the GCRF uh, money so there is this huge scope to do good for the world through that route and I very much hope that that will be Preserved, but also I think this is a good moment for the UK to think about um, our our impact as a um, as a colonizer. So, how do we decolonize some of those approaches? How do we start to think about engaging with those partners in a uh, in a more equal way? And that's not to say we've not done a huge good through that fund so far. Um, but actually, it's something that the global health community is thinking about more broadly, and uh, is is um kind of another aspect within within GCRF and other funds where I think we can start to um, we can start to re- redefine and reimagine those relationships.
1: Thanks, Beth. Um, I'm going to turn to a question now from Timo Vogler, uh, which I'll, I'll put first to, to you, um, Pascal. <clears throat> He's, he picks up on, on the comment that Richard made uh, about the importance of uh, regulatory convergence and clinical research in particular and says, is the panel worried about divergence in clinical trials regulation um, after Brexit and whether that might slow down research on new medicines?
3: No, that's a fundamental point. And, And to be very frank, at least seen from where I am, this is the only real uncertainty about Brexit. What remains unknown and I can understand why the UK government does not want to show its hand on this, not because of a negotiating problem with the EU, but because of a problem with UK public opinion. How much will UK diverge from EU regulatory wise is the real issue of Brexit. We will not have tariffs on cars or carrots or whatever. I mean, so stupid, (laughs) such a fancy, But this is not the problem. The problem for you, and this is not a problem for us in a way, because we've always said from the very beginning, we won't change the way the EU internal market is structured, regulated, the way we do that. You, of course, will not be sitting at the table anymore. And your problem is how much you diverge? Now, in theory, Brexit was done in uh, the notion that you would have to the question. Now you can do that. You couldn't before. You can do that now. How much of that will you do? It will, will govern the real economic impact of Brexit. And as you exactly said, and I think clinical tests is one good example, uh, pesticide residues is another one, uh, bird hunting is a third one, the size of bumpers is a fourth one and I have a list of 835 BIS issues where this question will be raised and you will have to answer it bit by bit. My own sense of what it's worth is that the moment the cost of divergence will appear, The thing will probably find a sort of more rational uh, solution with time. But this is, this is unavoidable. You have to answer this question. What's the ground for diverging, apart from the political comfort of not being ruled by this terrible machinery down there on the continent? And I I agree there is a sort of Uh, sort of sentimental satisfaction for for those who uh, argued uh, this case. That's done, that's the past. The question now is how much you diverge? And this will have a lot of consequences on the upstream of production, which is uh, innovation, development and up there research. I am absolutely clear about this. But, you know, this again, this is a question for you, uh, not for us. Although, although, uh, border control uh, have a cost uh, in terms of a slowing trade and making, uh, and and border controls are not all at the border, as we know. And clinical testing is a good example of that. So that's uh, that's the that's the fundamental question, and and the answer is not again is not for us continental you have to uh, you have to find the the proper proportion between the enormous satisfaction of brexiting politically and the big cost of brexiting economically
1: thanks pascal i'm gonna um as you might anticipate joe turn to you now Uh, how can the uk square this circle realize the um benefits of being able to to diverge which many people see from, from having left the EU without creating these sorts of barriers and problems which uh, Pascal's been talking about
2: um well I mean you know, I'm yet to see the it clearly set out those areas where we do want to diverge um, so you know let's let's wait and see a clear exposition of where those of where those gains are I guess in trade policy is is the obvious is the obvious one um, where where the UK has has set maker that's one of the biggest wins from brexit is an independent trade policy and um you know we are starting to see you know deals come out of the of the new department for international trade that you know uh, arguably um better reflect the needs of the uk economy so i guess that's that's an that's an example there the, the may there may be others uh in other areas in uh, in, in medical regulation and so forth, but let's let's wait and see.
1: Richard,
4: do you want to come in? Uh, yeah, I just um, want to say, I mean, the, the regulation of medicines and vaccines has never been more in the public spotlight for very good and obvious reasons. Uh, and it's because under no circumstances can we ever compromise on patient safety uh, and clarity for everyone involved about the efficacy of what we're giving uh, health systems. Um, to be very clear, from our perspective, uh, what matters is high global standards on regulatory uh, 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 rules and standards. And you know, I think obviously there are a number of challenges that we still need to unpick from uh, the departure from the European Union. I, you know, is it possible to do certain things quicker and more efficiently? whilst within those same global standards? I would say yes, possibly. Divergence is definitely not the answer. Creativity about how you can compete, I think is probably a a space where there needs to be more discussion.
1: Thanks, Richard. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw uh, the event to a close soon. So I just wanted to go around all of our panel and just ask them for their final thoughts. Um, And in particular, um, this may be uh, uh, unfair, but the the one thing that they would really like to see the government do now to maximise um, the the UK's um, position that they talk about global Britain. What should the government be doing to put global Britain off um, on the best foot in terms of being able to maximise the UK's um, research and maximise global research at this point in time? Um, So I'll go in uh, reverse order. Uh, Sorry, uh, Dr. Thompson and and kick off with you.
0: Thanks. I will come back to this idea of creating a vision and a strategy for where we want to get to. At the moment, Global Britain and what that means for research is a slogan, but it doesn't have that substance. And I think there are ideas. Um, We've heard lots of them today. We've heard some ideas from the community. But to me, that's something that the research community and the government uh, need to get behind, do their do their homework on, and it'd be interesting to see what's in the integrated review um, in terms of science and innovation. So, let's really double down on working out where it is we want to get to, and that will help us help guide some of the shorter term choices. Thanks, Beth. Uh, Richard.
4: Um, I'm going to be cheeky and ask for two quick things, if I may. One, because we haven't mentioned it yet on this call, which is that at the moment we have a very urgent crisis in the medical research charity space in the UK because of COVID. We have the most phenomenal medical research charities in this country that are a bedrock of the British sort of uh, biomedical research community and it's really important that they're supported through the current crisis. The more general forward looking point I wanted to make, though, is really coming back to, you know, if there's one thing that the UK could do through its trade agenda in a very positive way is be a strong voice for innovation, including science and all of the framework conditions that sit alongside it to generate economic growth from that science.
1: Thanks, Richard. Mr Lamy.
4: No,
3: I'll just leave you with one hope. And with... uh, A fascinating map I had the occasion to see uh, two days ago, which is uh, after a discussion with UPS, a map of the world that describes the challenge of distributing the 3 billion doses of vaccine that have been purchased on this planet, which, by the way, is only a bit less than half of the population and what. The so problem for the other half is a huge question, but that's not today's point. This map of the world is the nightmare of UPS, which has to reorganize totally its logistical chains because usually things of that size and that value were coming from Asia to Europe, and they now are, have to go from Asia from Europe to Asia the map of UPS on how you distribute these 3 billion doses, there's a big center, which is Europe, and it has to go all over the place in the world. Now, this is where Joe started. This is a picture of how strong we are for the moment. And my hope that whatever modalities for Brexit, such a map for the next pandemia will remain the same we will be ahead of the curve in both finding researching producing distributing that's one of my visions for europe
1: thank you very much indeed joe you have the final word
2: as we complete um this this drawn out protracted brexit process i think it's more important than ever that we have a open and supportive immigration system. We're, we're about to bring the curtain down on freedom of movement. Um, much to my regret, personally, I benefited from it on many occasions, studying overseas, working in working in France, Belgium, other European countries. Tragic that it's ending. But it is, and I think it's absolutely vital that we now ensure that we don't uh, double down on the damage we're doing ourselves by closing ourselves off to talent. The government has quite rightly created a new office for talent, um, in the centre of government, it would be, it'd be great um, to see it come out with some punchy policies that underscore that notwithstanding Brexit, we actually remain open to uh, brilliant scientists, brilliant researchers and anybody else who's going to add value to our economy, frankly.
1: Great, thank you very much indeed. Thank you every, to the all four of our, our panel for participating today. Thank you for um, everyone in the audience who tuned in uh, we had over 500 people planning to watch, so thank you very much. And thanks uh, again to Welcome Trust for partnering with us on this excellent event. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.